This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Am I hooked in the back? Can you hear me in the back? Good. Mark, thank you for those kind words. A little bit more than you needed to hear, but basically I'm just a simple, nice guy from Brooklyn who happens to be on assignment in Cleveland at the Cleveland Clinic for the last 30 years. Go figure. Work with me. It's the end of the afternoon. We're all going to get through this. There's a party tonight. First of all, I'd like to thank uh, Rose Hawker and Ted Rosen for the kind invitation to be part of this program once again. I was here at this meeting with all of you last year when the meeting was in Austin. It was my first time at the SDPA meeting, and I was struck by the meeting, and struck is the right word. I was struck by the program, the attendance, there were lots of you in the audience, by the attention you gave the program, and by your enthusiasm for the speakers, the topics, the subject. It was a treat for me to be asked to return for an encore. So I thank those folks in particular, and here we are. Okay, I am from Cleveland at the moment, so I bring you greetings from Cleveland, home of the Cavs, who are doing pretty well this year, despite last night. That was just a temptation and to please the TV audience. So it'll go five games or six. You know the thinking. We, we are in the Golden State. I really don't care who wins. It really doesn't matter. It's like last year. Indians are the Cubs. Everybody was for the Cubs except for folks from Ohio. It really didn't matter. The game is good. Golden State or Cleveland, it's going to be a fine series. It's also the home of the tribe, the Indians. They've done pretty well. And it's also the home of the woeful Browns. No comment. Do come and visit. Not in the winter. It's dreary and overcast. Lots of snow. Do come in the summer. This is a good time to come. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's on the lake. The lake is uh, swimmable. It does habit food. There are fish. The Cuyahoga River is no longer flammable. And sooner or later, the timer's going to start. I'm still at 60. That's good. I'll just keep talking. Okay, so you know I'm from Cleveland. Okay, the topic for the next 45 minutes, give or take, is what's new in ID. Very subjective, very arbitrary. It's what I found interesting in the literature to share with all of you as Derm PAs, um, nurse practitioners, docs in the room, etc. Things you read in the paper, you might hear on CNN, you might read in a journal or online or here at a meeting. Regarding the topic, I have absolutely no conflicts of interest. I have no interest in pharma, and pharma has no interest in me. Okay, the HIV AIDS epidemic began 35 years ago. It was probably smoldering for 10 or 20 years before that, but it hit the news 35 years ago, 1980. San Francisco, Newark, New York, Miami a bit. We've come a long way since then, but there are many unanswered questions and it is still a struggle. The virus itself was identified three years later, 1983. There's been an HIV test in place since 1985 and ART therapy, that's redundant, but ART has been available as therapy for more than 20, 25 years, give or take. If you look at this graphic representation of the global number of people living with HIV infection, the number continues to climb. It's flattening a little bit. We know the virus infection probably started in mid-Africa, 
but one out of six people, one out of six, currently reside in the Republic of South Africa, at the tip of that continent, in a country that barely recognizes the existence of HIV AIDS. So at the moment, 30 plus million people around the world living with AIDS at the moment. Most of those are adults, approximately 10% are kids, give or take. And in the US, the number is 1.2 million, that's total. We hit the 1 million mark just three years ago, 30 years plus into the epidemic. Deaths per year, approximately 2 million. 2 million people die from AIDS. A quarter of them, give or take, uh, are kids. 10% to a quarter, give or take, are kids. And the usual demise is an infection, and it's usually tuberculosis. It's a notorious co-infective condition with the HIV population. Yearly deaths in the states, about 15,000 give or take on the low number. New cases per year, same number of deaths. New cases, 2 million, number of demise, 2 million also. About 2 million and a quarter of those are kids, primarily based on they were born with it from an HIV-infected mom. In the US, the number of new cases per year until last year was rather stagnant, constant, at about 50,000. Now it's just about 40,000, about a 20% dip in the last two years. So we may be making a little progress, maybe because of uh, ART therapy, et cetera. There is no vaccine. The best one on the market is the Sanofi Pasteur vaccine, not on the market, but in development. But it's been in development for the last 20 years, give or take. Billions of dollars have been invested, mainly by the Sanofi company. Will we see a vaccine in our, in our lifetime? Hopefully, yes, but that was the case 20 years ago. We thought, hopefully, yes, but probably not in the immediate future. The CDC currently recommends annual HIV testing for not only those at risk, but for all adults. That means pretty much folks, men and women, age 17, 18, or older. Art therapy, that's redundant, but you got to say it that way, uh, really comprises an array of over 30 drugs. The first one was developed 25 years ago, give or take. And now folks who receive ART really need to receive at least two drugs, preferably three, maybe four or five. Each drug works in a different way, a different mechanist, mechanistic approach to uh, the, the enzyme uh, proliferation in, in the cell. So that's the reason you need more than one drug. And with that combination, folks do well, especially if they receive therapy in a developed country, the States, the Canada, and Europe. Now the flip side of that is the bad news. Only about one in five HIV patients receive ART as therapy. It's not available readily in Africa, Southeast Asia, India, et cetera, where it costs access to medicines is not very good, obviously. So the drugs, even though they help, primarily in developed countries around the world. When to treat? This was always a problem or a question. Do we wait for the CD4 level to diminish, or do we wait till the patient gets symptoms? No. As soon as you know the serology is positive, you treat, period. End of discussion. Everyone is in agreement with this in the States and in Europe. Next topic. If I showed this picture by itself without the verbiage, most of us in the room would say, don't know. It's a kiddo. It's a munchkin. Probably a viral illness. I have no idea. I haven't seen the pediatrician or the pediatric derm mainly because this is a condition that most of us have never seen, probably won't see. It's measles, highly contagious viral disease, which is thwarted by the use of the measles vaccine via MMR, measles, mumps, rubella. 
Incubation period, about 10 days, give or take. Runs its course in about seven to 10 days. And the secondary attack rate, meaning if someone hasn't had it and the kiddo does, is about 90%. It's almost 100%. It's almost inevitable. Fever, diarrhea, and a rash should make, any one of, should make us all think of measles as a working diagnosis. You can have some other things going on as well, a little cough, a little achiness, blah, blah, blah. Not very important. You keep the kid home. He's probably not in school anyway. Do supportive care. Bring him to the pediatrician. He or she may say it's measles or not, and life goes on. But around the world, this is a problem. It is clearly endemic in parts of the world. And I'll get to the main two areas in a moment. Uh, I gave this in, in Europe, and in Europe, it's really a problem. Tens of thousands of folks yearly, and five countries account for more than 90% of all cases in Europe. I'll come to the States in a moment. Italy, France, the UK, the Netherlands, and Romania account for more than 90% of all European cases of measles. The real areas in the world, though, are China, and the Philippines. If you have plans to visit, think about it. If you're taking your kids, make sure they've been vaccinated. If you're planning to go and you don't know your serologic status or your vaccination status, uh, you might want to think about getting the measles vaccination. Uh, around the world, 135,000 people die of measles each year, and that number could approximate zero if vaccination were uniformly available and done around the world. This is a grammatic representation of where you will find measles around the world today. China leads the list by far. More than 100,000 cases of measles in China. Now, it's a country of millions, so you think that's not a whole lot, but it's still a significant, significant number of folks. Closely followed by the Philippines, which is fairly well developed. There's a high American presence there. It's sort of a westernized country, but it still has a problem with measles. And then it really dips all the way down to the US at the very far bottom of the slide with only 600 plus cases just two years ago. In the US, it's been up and down, up and down. It's been 20, 30 years ago, there were 55,000 cases uh, over a 10 year period of time. That's 5,000 a year. Then it dropped. It cruised along at less than 60 cases per year for a while, went up again, up and down, up and down. And in 19, I'm sorry, in 2015, it hit a peak again of 200 cases, primarily because of those outbreaks in Disneyland in California early in the year. Last year, it dropped to 70, but this year, as of the end of April, we're already at 61 cases for the country, small number, will probably hit 200 easily for this year. So it's up and down, up and down. Differential diagnosis, measles should be part of it if it's fever, diarrhea, and rash. And this is the leading cause of death in kids under the age of five who have not been vaccinated. So it's a vaccine-preventable death. And the vaccine has been available for almost 45 years, so there's no excuse. Most patients who get the disease, whether it's China, the Philippines, or in the States, are those who have not been vaccinated. They're immigrants, they've been visiting, uh, money might be an issue, some are at home, they may not have compulsory, they may have schooling at home so they don't get their vaccinations. Remember when we were all growing up, well the younger folks might, you couldn't get into school until you had your vaccinations, uh, they had that proof, walking with a certificate, they let you into class. Now with homeschooling, some skepticism about vaccination, some religious concerns, the thought that it might create autism has really hit vaccinations, not only against measles, but against many other conditions as well. 
So the goal is to have a 90% vaccination rate, not only in the states, and we're about at that level, but around the world as well. But only about 60% of countries around the world can actually say they have a 90% vaccination rate. All right, another viral disease, hand, foot, and mouth disease, is known to the pediatricians and somewhat to pediatric dermatologists as this viral rash usually affecting the hands, the feet, and the butt. You know where that is, where you're sitting right now. You're comfortable and I gotta stand. What's been seen in the last few years is an atypical, more generalized presentation of this condition. And this is a nice study reported in pediatrics a few years ago from eight centers, 80 patients who were either serologically positive or who had a cutaneous expression of what they thought was atypical Coxsackie uh, disease, atypical hand, foot, and mouth. What they found was that most of the patients had vesicles, blisters, and erosions, extensive disease, primarily on the extremity, more than half of them had widespread disease, more than 10 to 20% of body surface, and there was somewhat of a predilection for the disease to hit eczematous or dermatitic areas if the kiddo had eczema beforehand. So this was an atypical, unusual presentation of what was called eczema consacchi because it's the same serologic proof of uh, hand, foot, and mouth disease. And the interesting thing is this has also been reported in adults. And when it hits adults, it's rather dramatic and extensive. It looks like a dermatitis. The patient has a fever. He or she has blisters, erosions. You think of impetigo. You think of dermatitis. You think of an immune blistering disease. They have arthritis as well. In the adult population, they can complain about their joints a little bit better. They do well. And what's interesting, in kids and adults, they lose their nails. Maybe not at the same time, usually thereafter. And if they have sort of a subclinical disease, they may come to you and say, Doc, I'm losing my nails. They're being sloughed. And you think, OK, maybe they had this. And the chances are they probably did, especially if they're an adult. So be aware there may be a sloughing of the nails, a deformity of the nails. It corrects itself. Nothing to do for this except supportive care. Dengue. If you have trip plans to travel, think twice. Dengue is prevalent around the world. It's in this tropical swath around the globe. More than two billion people are at risk for this condition. More than half a million people each year have dengue hemorrhagic fever, and about 10% of those, maybe five to 10% of those actually die. It's a potentially lethal disease when it marches on to become dengue hemorrhagic fever. The Disease is produced by a virus, a flavovirus. There are four sub subtypes. Number one is most common and the most potentially harmful, I won't say lethal, but it's more of the problem than the others. If you get infected with one of these, you are not protected against infection with the other subtypes. So there's no natural immunity. The culprit here is the mosquito, Aedes aegypti. And this critter is a nasty bug, nasty, angry, little vicious. It likes you and me during the heat of the day, not around dusk, as we think about mosquitoes, you know, wandering or flying around uh, retained water or a swampy area. This comes out in the heat of the day, noon, etc., and usually in urban areas. We don't think of mosquitoes being a problem in urban areas, but this is primarily a vector that acts as the uh, a vector for dengue in the heat of the day, usually in tropical urban areas. So it's the mid part of South America. It's the Caribbean. It's the mid part of Africa, Southeast Asia, etc. Again, the tropics. This is 
a disease that is the number one vector transmitted disease vis-a-vis -vis the mosquito, uh, more commonly so than any other vector transmitted disease known. 30-fold increase in the last 50 years. Short incubation period, basically a week, give or take. The nice thing is most folks who get nailed by the mosquito and get dengue are asymptomatic, or they might feel just a little achy, flu-like, no big deal. Those who get ill have a high fever, 104, maybe even a little bit more than that. Number two is a riveting, pounding, unilateral headache behind one orbit. So the head feels as if it's going to explode. They have some aches and pains, nausea and vomiting, maybe some lymphadenopathy, and about half of them develop a rash. And the rash is very nondescript. nondescript. And non, uh, it's a basically an exanthematous, morbilliform, viral exanthem-like look. No particular hallmark to it. Can become hemorrhagic, can become somewhat petechiae, but even with that, it's usually self-limited. It resolves in a week or so, life goes on, you treat it supportively, that's that. Who might you think about? People who have been traveling, always ask if they've been out of the area, been to the Caribbean, been to South America, been to the Far East, been to Africa, and if they come back a little achy, a little ill, they have a little bit of a rash maybe, think of dengue. Can't really do much for it. You can check serology to prove your hunch that it might be the right diagnosis, but after that, it's supportive care, nothing more than that. The interesting pattern of the rash, you've heard the you know, spared islands, and that might be a diagnosis of T-cell lymphoma or PRP, pityriasis, rubric pilaris. Well, if you see an exanthematous rash that has spared islands of skin surrounded by the sea of red, think of dengue. It's a rather characteristic look, but it's not pathognomonic for it. Chingagunya. Chingagunya is something you probably, if you've heard of it, you probably haven't heard much about it. It's a cousin of dengue. Uh, it's produced, the causative agent here is a different virus. It's a toga virus, but the vector is exactly the same. It's, again, the 80s mosquito for the most part. But it looks like dengue, smells like dengue, but it's not dengue. Little aches and pains, little fever. The arthritis that occurs, though, is rather typical and classic. It's a debilitating arthritis. It can last for days, weeks, months, sometimes even years. Tends to be symmetric, but not always so can mimic rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, but it's a debilitating arthritis. The rash with chingagunya is like dengue, but it's primarily on the acral part of the body. The hands, the feet, mimicking a little bit Rocky Mountain spotted fever, but the hands and the feet rather than the trunk. The rash likes the ears, and it likes the nasolabial folds right along the side of the nose. And you can say, oh, it's just seborrheic dermatitis, but seborrheic dermatitis is a dermatitis. It flakes, it's a little red. This is kind of purpuric on the nasolabial folds. And the guys that get this often have scrotal edema. Now the scrotum itself, I'll say with a smile, is usually a little pink in color anyway, but folks with uh, chingagunya actually, guys actually have a red scrotum. The causative vector, Aedes aegypti in the States, it's another vector as well, albopictus. Not quite as notorious, not quite as angry a mosquito, doesn't quite bother the population very much, and that mosquito is present right up through the Midwest, from the Southwest, the southern part of the state, right up to the Midwest. Chingagunya around the world, same distribution almost as dengue, not that much of a problem in the states, less than 200 cases in the United States last year. It likes the southern part. 
Calif um, Southern California to a degree, but really the Caribbean, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, the southern parts of those countries. It's very present in the rainy season around Miami. So it's pretty much a year-round disease, but most people are asymptomatic. They never come to a doctor's attention. If you're planning a trip to the Caribbean, it's okay to head to Bermuda. You can still head to Cuba as long as flights are still going. Flights have diminished somewhat, and somebody is thinking about cutting flights and closing the door to that. So go if you can, while you can. The other place to go, if you'd like, is Bermuda. Don't go to Guadeloupe, Martinique, and St. Martin. Uh, try to avoid those because there have been lots of cases of chingagunya. And now we have another viral disease in the news, Zika. A flavivirus just like dengue, mosquito as a vector, just like dengue, just like chingagunya. A viral-like illness, aches and pains, not much of a rash, comes and goes. 75-80% of affected individuals are asymptomatic but the sequelae have become notorious and become alarming in the news, the printed media, the visual media, and for us as well. And that is mainly for women who get infected with Zika. A high likelihood, if they're pregnant, of miscarriage and microcephaly if the child actually is born. Treatment for the problem, supportive. But remember, if you get Zika, you can actually transmit it to your partner through sex. Bingo, so you don't have to be around a mosquito. So this is technically a sexually transmitted disease. Where is it? Well, it's been around actually for 70 years. It began in Africa, made its way across the Pacific, and then declared itself in South America about two years ago, again in Brazil. So Brazil, <coughs> a country that starts with a B. Uh, problem with dengue, problem with chingagunya, problem with Zika, uh, problem with leishmaniasis, I'll come to that later. Later, The economy isn't so great that the Olympics survived. You might think about going somewhere else. Okay, I'm making a little light of that, but South America, the big country of Brazil, seems to be more of a nidus of a lot of activity, both medical and economic. Not much to do for Zika, supportive care as well. Clinical features, when you think about Zika, chingagunya, and um, uh, dengue, dengue, for the most part, has the fever that can be very high, 104 plus. The arthritis is a real strong feature of chingagunya, and with uh, Zika, it is primarily the rash itself if it develops. That's it. Very subtle changes, but if you've got arthritis, you've got chingagunya. And then we have filovirus. Filovirus, not filo for cooking, et cetera, filovirus, the Ebola virus, the Marburg virus. These are notoriously deadly viruses that have a high potential for killing. You probably remember this from Western Africa just three years ago in Sierra Leone, Guyana, and Liberia. High potential lethality, appro approximating 90%. Five virulent strains, there's no protection if you get it, if you develop the illness, you are probably dead within about five to seven days, period, end of discussion. The likely reservoir, fruit bats, contact with fruit bats or animal carcasses, dead animals, or in the medical field, if you're caring for people, or if you're uh, providing any kind of health care, or if you have burying them, burial procedures, usually in these countries, don't require 
gloves, garments, etc. No protection. So any contact with bodily fluids. Incubation period, probably closer to three to five days. Three phases, it just marches on. Starts with general malaise, GI, hits the skin. By the time it hits the skin, the patient is probably dead. Not much to do for this outside of support, hydration, and prayer. But if a patient actually had it down the street in San Diego, my hometown in Cleveland, or yours, wherever, the, wherever it might be, good hospital care, hydration, attention to details, fluid and electrolyte balance, etc. folks do well. They just don't do well if they're in a compromised part of the world. Skin disease, by the time this is present, you're at a post-mortem primarily. Anxiety factor, when this was in the news, was extremely high, but the actual reality factor is very low. Staying with viruses, there's a new approach to HSV disease. HSV affects probably 30 million people around the country, through in, in the country, and it's a problem. We've all had HSV infection when we were young. It can be recurrent, what to do, over-the-counter products, antiviral things. Acyclovir works, and there's a new formulation of it as a buckle tablet using something called Laureade technology. It's basically an adhesive buckle tablet which you place over the incisor tooth on the affected area of the face. Do that early on in the prodrome within that first hour or two. If you can make saliva easily, that's great. If you have a dry mouth, just swish some liquid around in it. Quickly gets absorbed into the saliva and the secretions. And this has now been available for the last two years or so. And the key here is a milk protein concentrate which allows adherence. And there's no problem for individuals even if they're lactose intolerant because the concentration is extremely, extremely small. Slow release over a period of about 15 to 20 hours, give or take, but it's shown to decrease the duration of episodes by a day. That's pretty good. Decreases the likelihood of recurrence by more than 20%, not bad, and it blocks episodes as well. It's a bit expensive, but it's just something else to reach for uh, if you don't have access to uh, a doc for acyclovir pills or famcyclovir or valacyclovir, and you're stuck with just using over-the-counter remedies. Genital HSV disease, we know how to treat this. It was acyclovir years past. Famcyclovir and valacyclovir work very well. Valcyclovir, the once-daily suppressive treatment or the three-day regimen for active uh, episodic disease, works well. Ditto for famcyclovir. The bottom line is all three drugs are fine for genital HSV disease. Just keep that in mind. The same is pretty much true for zoster, although famcyclovir and um, valacyclovir tend to work a little bit better. They're more quickly absorbed, more readily absorbed. You don't need to take those drugs on a five-day, five times a day regimen, just two or three times, and you're fine. And for zoster, the drug of choice, in my opinion, is valcyclovir. So when you look at zoster itself, all of us in the room have a small risk for zoster. The lifetime risk for, for zoster is about 5%, give or take. And that percentage goes up as we get older. We lose our cellular mediated immunity. So the likelihood of zoster when you hit 50, 60 is about 30%, give or take. So the longer you live, the greater the likelihood you might get zoster. If you do get zoster, what you need is rest, because it is a viral attack on the body. Rest, analgesics, more rest, cool it. And if you can get to your doc or get to one of you folks here, uh, an antiviral, preferably valcyclovir or famcyclovir, even acyclovir would be good, preferably valcyclovir, a gram three times a day or a gram and a half twice a day, coupled with 
coupled with, if you can, gabapentin. The addition of gabapentin in an older adult, middle-aged or older, will decrease the likelihood of post-herpetic neuralgia by more than 75%. The reference here is the archives of Durham three years ago. I just didn't include it on the slide. And if you want to forestall the development of zoster or hopefully prevent it, then think about the zoster vaccine. The zoster vaccine has been available for the last 10 years. It is highly effective, it is safe, and it is strong, and it is recommended for healthy, healthy adults aged 50 or more. It's one dose, and studies have shown that basically with a the basis of approval of the medication, that it decreased the likelihood of zoster by 50%. So if your likelihood is, let's say, 30% at the age of 60, you've reduced it to 15% if you get the, the vaccine. And if you do break through and get zoster, it'll probably be a little bit more tolerable, short-lived, you won't be that uncomfortable either, and it will decrease the likelihood of the post-herpetic neuritis or neuralgia by about 65, 70%. Not bad. So. We all should get it. Nobody in the room here is old enough for it. I am. I had it. But if you're approaching 50, think about getting it. Tell your folks to get it. Okay. So it's safe, effective. It works. It's been out there for 10 years, and people aren't getting it. Why? Three reasons. Number one, Merck Sharp and Dome, which makes the product, has not been able to keep up with the demand, the request for it. There's not an overwhelming demand. They just don't produce enough of it. I don't know why. So there's been a chronic shortage of the vaccine since day one right until now. Number two, the cost. The cost was equivocal. When it came out, it was expensive. Three, four, five hundred dollars. Who was going to pay for it? The patient, Medicare, insurance, you know, a donation from the family, it was unclear. Now it's covered pretty, pretty well, pretty nicely, but not uniformly so. So some patients still need to pay for this, especially if they're not Medicare years um, and their insurance doesn't cover vaccination because they're an adult, no longer a kid. The cost now is about $200. And number three, we are the problem. The medical folks, the docs, they haven't quite bought into this and pushed it and been advocates for the vaccine. And I think that's on us. That, that burden is on us to remind folks when they hit 50, think of the zoster vaccine. It's safe, it's effective, it works. How long does it last? Protective duration is probably about eight years at least. So about 10 years, folks need to think about getting a booster, another vaccination for it. But again, it's only indicated for healthy adults. If someone has a cancer, is on immunosuppressive therapy, has diabetes, et cetera, no go, okay? So, to make up for that, there's a new vaccine in the works. This is an inactivated, um, adjuvanated vaccine for zoster. Tested in 18 countries, 15,000 people. It's two pokes, two months apart, and it works very well. More than 95% efficacy at three years and higher efficacy in older patients. So we can give this to older folks, we can give this to compromised people, and it seems to work even better than the Zosta vaccine, which is a live vaccine, 14 times the strength of the varicella vaccine, which was developed, oh, 20 years ago. So this is on the horizon. A follow-up study in 14,000 patients just published about two, three months ago showed that the efficacy was greater than 70% not only in preventing zoster, but in minimizing post-herpetic neuralgia. So it's a double hit, equally so, better than the uh, zoster vaccine itself. 
Human papillomavirus. How are we doing so far? Are we okay? That's not even close to resonance. All right, that's better. Okay. Human papillomavirus. There are over 100 subtypes capable of producing a wide variety of warts. Common warts, planar warts, genital warts, flat warts, as well as papillomas on the skin, the nose, the mouth, around orifices. Um, and we now have a vaccine, a vaccine, just one, but I'll give you a little bit of history, that can help mitigate the development of venereal warts. And 90% of venereal warts are caused by HPV 6 and 11. And 70 now, almost 90% of all virally related tumors, cervix, vaginal, rectal areas, et cetera. Initially, there were two HPV vaccines. There was Gardasil, which was a quadrivalent vaccine, which worked on all four subtypes. The two that were responsible for most condyloma and the two that were responsible for most cervical cancer. And we had um, Cervarix, which was only a bivalent vaccine against the oncogenic HPV types. Gardasil, the quadrivalent variety, is off the market. Uh, no longer a need for it because we now have Gardasil 9. And Cervarix, there wasn't much of a need for it, but it's only a two-pronged hit instead of a four-pronged hit. It's gone. There's only one vaccine at the moment, and that's Gardasil, which has protective value against nine different HPV types. The two that are mainly responsible for condyloma and the seven that are notoriously responsible for cervical cancer, vaginal cancer, vulvar cancer, etc. So this became available a little more than a year ago. I think it was late 2015, something like that. And uh, it's recommended for men and women, wide variety of age, roughly 10 to 25, give or take, three doses are recommended, zero, two, and six months. If the kiddo, boy or girl, is less than 15, you can get by with two doses six months apart. But if you want to prevent cancer, that means the female patient, the female, not, not a patient, the female individual, you need three doses. You need three. So remember, two is good, two is okay, three is better. Very, very effective. Almost 100% effectiveness. It should not be given to pregnant women, but it can be given to men having sex with men, to protect them against viruses. The problem with this is a little bit like zoster. Docs aren't buying into it. Parents aren't buying into it. They hear about the vaccine, oh, you're going to give them the vaccine, then Johnny and Mary can go out and have sex. Not exactly. There's protective value against condyloma, yes, sexually transmitted disease, indeed, that is the case. But it also has protective value for the woman and for the guys who might get papilloma and some warts as well. For women, as far as the long term is concerned, meaning cervical cancer, vulva cancer, vaginal cancer, that should be the selling point by family docs and pediatricians as parents bring their kids in for this vaccination. It should just be part of the vaccination process. And docs should accent maybe the oncogenic, but without men mentioning cancer, protective value rather than the sexual uh, venereal wart protective value. This is a tough conversation. I mean, I, I, I guess it is between docs and parents. And then with vaccination, I mentioned before, there's hesitation, religious grounds, the sexual connotation, et cetera. And if you look at how many kids have gotten in their injections, girls have done pretty well. We thank the parents for that, because the parents pretty much have to say, yes, it's OK. So 65% of girls got their first injection, and only half of the boys got 
of first injection. When they get to the third injection, uh, less than half of the number who got the first in the female group got up to three, and even less than that with the boys. The CDC would like to hit an 80% goal in three years. I don't think that's going to happen, so it's up to us to foster the use of this vaccination in teenagers. Syphilis, alive and well around the world. 12 million plus cases around the globe, not that many in the states, probably about 25,000 cases on an annual basis, give or take. Uh, it is up in South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, but 12 million cases. The primary focus is the Sub-Sahara area, Africa, Southeast Asia, and in the new Russia. Uh, cases were only about 100,000 maybe 10 years ago. Maybe it wasn't being reported as universally or as honestly as we might have thought it was, but it's really on the rise there a lot. In the States, it's up, down, up, down. It, it, it's really hard to predict. It was once thought to be a disease of African Americans in the South. Now it's pervasive across the country, primarily pocketed in cities, but not necessarily so. Uh, if you look at this pie chart, on your right in the dark blue, this is the distribution of cases of primary and secondary syphilis. And most of the affected patients here in the dark blue are guys, men having sex with men. The big black swath is also guys, and they, there's no data about their sexual partners. So even if you assume half of them have sex with guys and the other half with women, the total number is probably about 65% anyway. So two-thirds of all cases of primary and secondary syphilis in this country are in men having sex with men. And that group is accounting for the uptick in the number of cases of syphilis in this country in the last 10 years, give or take, easily. Most of them are also HIV positive. Um, maybe, they think, maybe they think they're immune. I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but that's the subgroup, that's the cohort of patients um, where it's affected. In the States, if you don't want to talk about the disease, if you don't want to think about it, move to Wyoming or Montana. Otherwise, you're going to be in states where it is a problem. Now, if you look at the, the diagrammatic representation of just the states, the state, the most syphilitic state in the country, that's the way Ted is often, Ted Rosen has described it, is once again Louisiana, right smack in the middle of it, down and in the bayou. But look at some other numbers. D.C., which isn't a state, but it's sort of a city state by itself, that number is very close, 14 and a half. And then if you look at the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, 15. So Louisiana, Puerto Rico, D.C., there's a real presence there. Just think about it in those terms. The resurgence of Syphilis and men having sex with men, this has been looked at a couple of times. The cofactors for its presence in that group are HIV co-infection, recreational drug use, that's amphetamines, as well as something like Viagra, invariably multiple sex partners, men having sex with men, and oral sex, unlike HIV, which is primarily anal sex. The disease, meaning syphilis in women, rather stable and flat over the last three decades, which is good. Congenital syphilis, that was also a truism, that it was rather stable and flat over the last three decades, give or take. But it has been seeing a little bit of an uptick in the last six, seven years. I have data to support that, but it's a little bit on the rise. Typically, it's being neglected. It's not being looked for. There's no prenatal testing. When it is positive, it's too late to treat or it's done too late. Um, it's a problem. It's not big numbers, but numbers enough that are a bit concerning. 
Lymphogranuloma venerium. What the hell is that? Does anybody know without looking at the slide? No. Okay, it's something you've heard about, learned about, in one ear, out the other, and say, ah, it doesn't pertain to me. And to me as well, it doesn't pertain to me. This is an uncommon disease, but the presentation is somewhat common, and we should remember that, and I'll get to that in a moment. This is a chlamydial disease, primarily affecting women until the HIV era, and then it began to affect men a little bit more so. Uh, not very common in the country, a couple of thousand cases each year, but there are now increasing clusters of the disease, once again, like syphilis, in men having sex with men. Clusters in urban areas in the States and in Europe. The main risk factors, HIV serology, multiple partners, and unsafe sex. And the clinical presentation is lumps and bumps in the groin, prominent lymphadenopathy, buboes, coupled with some GI complaints, proctitis, irritable bowel, diarrhea, etc. Things just aren't right, things aren't moving right, and coupled with the lumps and bumps in the groin. So if you see someone in your practice, invariably a guy, but it could be a woman, who's got some lymphadenopathy in the groin, lumps and bumps, prominent lymphadenopathy, before you think of a lymphoma or hydradenitis suppurativa, which are legitimate concerns, maybe think of LGV. Maybe they have a chlamydial infection, but not the way a, a woman might typically get it. And then they ask about their gut, uh, moving your bowels, what's going on, inflammation, et cetera, the runs. They may have LGV. You can test for it, you treat with doxycycline, and you eliminate the likelihood of obstruction, stricture. People die from this if they don't get treatment. Not trying to alarm you, but it's a legitimate disease. Leishmaniasis. We're going around the globe. It's a real travelogue. Leishmaniasis, a problem around the world. About two million new cases a year, primarily in the Middle East and somewhat in the lower um, sphere of the Western Hemisphere, meaning Central and South America. Most folks have skin disease, as I'll show in the next picture, but about a quarter of them have true visceral disease. Um, Kalar Azar is the name that goes for true visceral leishmaniasis. The causative agent is a protozoa. There are more than 20 species. The vector is the sand fly. You think of a fly as flying, floating? No, this fly doesn't fly, it hops. So it really doesn't get airborne, it just hops. Uh, it hops and it bites and it's the vector for the protozoa. In the old country it's called phlebotomus. In the new world, uh, meaning Mexico, the Caribbean, Central South America, it's called lutsamaya. The causative agents, you see them. What to do for this if you have cutaneous disease, as shown on the cheek here. This is something, before I get to the treatment, this is something you can see in the States because it's based on military presence in the Middle East. Healthy guys come back, healthy women come back with this uh, Baghdad sore on their cheeks, so to speak. Uh, they've been nailed by the sand flea. They have leishmaniasis. You want to do something. So it's a disease you can see in Cleveland, in Fresno, in Dallas. It can happen. Uh, you travel to Mexico, the Caribbean, it can make its way back to the States as well. You don't need to treat this. If you're brave and hardy and you know the patient has localized cutaneous disease from the Middle East, the old world variety, you can be the stoic and say, I don't think we need to. But if you have somebody walking in like that, he or she's going to want something to be done. No surgery. Forget that. Big scar. So what do you reach for? You reach for one of these pentavalent antimonial compounds, which you need to request from the CDC. 
they're basically heavy metals. And they're given intramuscularly, sometimes intravenously, for at least three weeks. If you have visceral disease, it's four weeks. Alternatively, alternatively, you can use amphotericin B, even liposomal amphotericin B, which is the drug of choice for this in India because the pentavalent antimonial compounds have developed resistance there. So amphotericin B is probably a good first choice in many respects, but you don't need to treat. So cutaneous disease, maybe yes, maybe no. If you have access to an ointment called paromamycin, it's available in the Middle East, it's available in Israel, applied to that sore, very good success rate, 75, 80%. And that might be a nice way to go, a cream rather than something systemic. Um, but if you've got mucocutaneous disease, which has the potential to eat away the nose and the mouth, you're obligated to treat. If you have visceral disease, you're obligated to treat. And this is a new kid on the block. This is a new treatment in the States for Leishmaniasis. It's been available in Europe for about the last three to four years, and it's a pill. Pills are great. No poke, no cream, no prayer. We got a pill. 100 to 150 milligrams a day. It works better on the organisms that are found in the Western Hemisphere. It doesn't work that well on the organisms found in the Middle East and the Far East. Cure rates, 60, 70%, somewhat variable. It works. It's fairly good choice if you've got limited disease and you want to prescribe a pill. Tattoos. Any idea how many people in this audience have tattoos? At least one? The number of tattoos in the U.S. population, not the number of tattoos, the number of people with tattoos, is about 22, 23%. I don't have one. That means two of you in the front do. Okay. Um, but of the U.S. population, adults, one or two tattoos, almost 25% of the population. Not a fan of tattoos, but sometimes we see reactions in tattoos. And you see a reaction, you say, oh, they just reacted to the dye. It's a dermatitis. It's an allergic contact dermatitis. We've got to get rid of the dye, go get laser treatment, et cetera, et cetera. So you do intralesional steroid, not much happens. You do some patch testing, not much happens. And you say, damn it, let's do a biopsy. And the biopsy shows a granuloma. And if you see a granuloma, then you should think of infection. And if you see infection, think of something a little bit esoteric, a little bit off the beaten path. Think of infection with a non-tuberculous mycobacteria. That means it's not TB, it's not leprosy, it's nothing bad. It's what's called an atypical or non-tuberculous mycobacterial organism, specifically a rapidly growing one. That's the reason for the RGM, rapidly growing mycobacteria. And these are the culprits usually. And I simply give you a representation of some of the reports of mycobacteria infection within tattoos around the world in the last five, six years, give or take. Many more reports could follow this as well. These organisms are neat in many respects. They're interesting to study. They're interesting to the microbiologist. They're somewhat interesting to us um, because they are a challenge. m 4 typically affects younger people, MK loni, older people, especially those who have been immunocompromised, and abscesses is the one you don't want to encounter on a lab report. It's the most pathogenic of the rapidly growing organisms. It is the most resistant to therapy, and it is clearly an emerging pathogen. It really is. Rapidly growing means when you put it on culture, Lowenstein, Jensen, one of the other TB media that your microbiology folks 
will share with you. It grows quickly, three, four, five days, and you've got growth, and you say, whoa, there it is, rather than TB or the slower-growing organisms, which could take up to six weeks. What to do for this? If you encounter it in a tattoo or elsewhere, because these infections often follow surgery, heart surgery, breast surgery, plastic surgical surgery, uh, you're really obligated to treat. And if so, consult with your ID guy, because this is not going to respond to cephalexin or doxycycline or clindamycin. You need two, three, maybe four drugs, amicacin, a cephalosporin, uh, a macrolid antibiotic as a macrolid uh, antibiotic as well. You need at least three. If it's small and you feel aggressive enough, you might be able to cut it out, just excise it, but monotherapy, no, no, no. And you gotta treat for a long while, maybe up to six months. Leprosy is another mycobacterial disease. I throw it in because it's on the wane. It is diminishing worldwide. It's a chronic disease. We know the causative agent, M. leprae, mycobacterium leprae. But there's a new agent. If you didn't know that, you do now. Discovered or recognized in Mexico about 10 years ago, give or take. And it was called mycobacterium lepromatosis. And this produces a rather diffuse um, lepromatous type disease, typically in younger people, with a very variable presentation. Now, true microbiologists don't believe this. I have a little bit more of an open mind. I think there might indeed be another organism. I mean, our Mexican colleagues are pretty good, and they had over 100 patients with this subtype called mycobacterium lepromatosis. Incubation period for leprosy in general is long, five, six, seven years, low contagion, but you need multi-drug therapy for this. Uh, ethambutol, rifampin, et cetera. Again, South Africa, Southeast Asia. In the States, hardly anything at all. Maybe 200 new cases per year. The actual total number of cases around the world is only 200,000 plus, give or take. And the only place to avoid, as far as leprosy, country with a B, Brazil. Again, you know, I don't think I'd go to Brazil that quickly. Um, a lot of things going on down there. But in the Western Hemisphere, Brazil seems to be the only country where leprosy remains a problem. So leprosy is on its way out. Will it ever approach the state of smallpox? Probably not. But we're going to see less and less of this and hear less and less of this. <sighs> Hospital-acquired resistant infections, MRSA in a hospital setting, have been known for more than 50 years. The community-acquired variety has been known for only about 30 years. And this is the group of infections usually seen in folks like us, young, healthy adults, right, right, um, who are not ill, who develop their illness on the outside of the hospital. So the community-acquired variety is a subset of all of the MRSA infections. Hospital-acquired occur in the hospital, the community-acquired outside. What does that mean? It means we typically see the hot lesion this boil, this abscess, this furuncle, this carbuncle, this juicy red nodule, could even be a cyst appearing on the shoulder, the butt, the leg of a woman, a guy, an athlete maybe, maybe living in close confines in a dorm, went to summer camp, etc. but it's a hot lesion in typically a young person. And this automatically falls in our domain. As dermatologists and extensions of dermatologists in your practice, you're going to see people with eczema, acne, warts, and these hot lesions. Maybe not as much as the ER might, but you might. So be aware because they fall in our derm domain. Most of these you can just call abscess, 
boils, et cetera. Sometimes they're folliculitis, sometimes they're cellulitis. And what do you do? Well, the easiest and best thing to do is sharpen your scalpel, prep the area, incise, drain, put on a mask, put on a hat, button up, raise your collar, keep the walls clean, puncture that sucker, watch it explode. It's like delivering a kid, I guess, or the opening scene from Aliens, if you know that movie. And life is good, and that's all you have to do. You can pack it if you want. Don't close it with sutures. Pack it with some iodoform. Even leave it open. Send the patient home and tell him or her to compress it. You don't need antibiotics. You don't need antibiotics. For the third time, I could say it, you don't need them. But you might need them if you have a large lesion, like on the middle of the face, bingo. It's the face, folks. You got to do it. Or if it's in a tricky location, the hand, the foot, or the groin, not good. If the patient has cellulitis, that rapidly expanding redness, is febrile, you do need antibiotics. If you have a young kiddo, maybe three, four, five years old, or an oldster, 80, 85, maybe with some comorbidities, some other illnesses, you need an antibiotic. But that's really subsetting it out to a big degree. Most of the time, probably 95%, you don't. Is there any harm in doing it? No. Is there any real benefit? No. If it makes you feel better, fine. But I think it's, again, perhaps a little bit of overuse of antibiotics. I think we prescribe antibiotics much too frequently. So just keep it in mind. If you do need an antibiotic, you've got three good choices in the outpatient setting. Trimethoprin, sulfamethoxazole, clindamycin, and doxycycline. Most of us will probably reach for doxycycline because we use it occasionally for rosacea, for acne. Trimethoprin sulfamethoxazole is a damn good drug. Most of us, your supervisors and them, might say, well, gee, you might get a rash. The incidence of rash is extremely small. Don't worry about it. It's a good drug. Clindamycin is more of a problem. Its resistance is increasing, especially in the pediatric population and the young adult population. So if I had my choice, doxycycline is fine. TMP, sulfamethoxazole is fine. Clinda would be my third choice. If hospitalized, you've got to reach for vancomycin. That should be your first drug of choice. What's new, there are quick tests that, where you can obtain a simple swab, send it to the lab, and you'll get an answer within five hours whether you have an infection with staph and whether it's MSSA, methicillin-sensitive, versus MRSA, methicillin-resistant. That's very helpful if, indeed, you need an antibiotic. What else is new? Smoking, here's another reason not to smoke, to tell patients not to smoke uh, more. Patients, smoking, smokers are more likely to develop an MRSA infection if they have some tendency to it anyway. And smoking also decreases the ability of macrophages to fight off that infection. So smoking is really a no-no. What's new? This was a nice study from five emergency rooms in the US looking at trimethoprin sulfamethoxazole versus nothing, versus a placebo to see if the pill would be a little bit better than nothing. This again, you know, I don't even know why this was done. I don't know why the New England Journal accepted this because we all know that simple incision and drainage would be adequate, but they took this on. A lot of patients, 1,200 plus, nothing, just simple IND versus something, trimethoprin sulfamethoxazole plus IND and see what happened. And trimethoprine worked a little bit better. Not dramatically better, success rate 80%, about 74, 75% with just the placebo. That's still pretty good in my book. And then we 
look at the two drugs I mentioned. We like doxy, clindamycin, and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. This was a nice study. Over 500 patients, evenly split, who had a big abscess, five centimeters or more, and or cellulitis, and they received one drug or the other, clindamycin or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for 10 days each. Um, some had an overlap with the cellulitis and, and the abscess formation. The cure rates were comparable with both. So this is good proof, good basis that you can use either one of these drugs versus doxycycline. So if you need an antibiotic, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, clindamycin, doxycycline, not necessarily in that order, fine. Chronic recurrent leg cellulitis. You see a warm red leg, not legs, leg, unilateral, People like that often have a true cellulitis, maybe based on edema, uh, peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, age, dependency, et cetera. But cellulitis is straightforward to the emergency room, to the ID folks, to dermatologists as well. And what do we do for that? This was a nice study. 28 hospitals in the UK and Ireland, uh, more than 270 patients received penicillin, 250 milligrams twice a day, that's a mistake, versus a placebo to see how patients who had chronic recurrent leg cellulitis, basis of definition was three to four episodes a year that warranted at least a mini hospitalization, maybe a true hospitalization, maybe even just outpatient care, to see how they did. Those who received penicillin, 500 milligrams a day in a divided dose, the time to the first recurrence was over 600 days compared to the placebo, which was only a little more than 500 days. So the recurrence rate was about 20%, give or take, if they got the drug, penicillin, versus almost 37% if they got the placebo. So in that setting, penicillin actually diminished, diminished the likelihood of recurrence of leg cellulitis uh, and actually made those folks a little better, a little healthier, et cetera. It worked. Unfortunately, as soon as the drug was stopped, things reverted back to normal. So if you have a patient with chronic recurrent leg cellulitis, even historically, uh, this might be worth thinking about and utilizing. Penicillin, 250 milligrams, twice a day. It's cheap medicine. I think penicillin is still cheap. Okay, new antibiotics. At the moment, there are less than 25 antibiotics approved by the FDA for the treatment of skin and soft tissue infections. That's it, 25. There are more than 250 antibiotics available around the world for us to prescribe, but in the States, just 25 for skin and soft tissue infections. I'm gonna cover the last four very briefly. The first one is a cephalosporin, the first one in about 20 years. It's one that we're not going to use. Administration is intravenously, but it is indicated for skin and soft tissue infections. Good drug, comparable to vancomycin. You can use it if you want. It's, it's expensive. We're not gonna use this one. Our ID colleagues will. Now, if you look at this, it's a little bit busy, but these are, this is a summary slide with one more to come, about three new drugs. Two are glycopeptides on the first two lines, and one is an oxazolinidone, which is related to linazolid. These are good drugs, and I'm gonna push you down to the bottom box. The second column, the first column with the numbers. Those are the half-lives. Look at that first number, 245 hours. Next line, 150 plus hours. Last one is just eight to 12 hours. This means that first drug, aritavancin, can be given once, just once intravenously, and life is good. Patient gets better, basically on his or her way to a cure, that's it. The next one, dalbavancin, is given twice, once now and once 
a week later. Looks good, right? The last one is related to linazolid. It's a cousin. can be given intravenously versus PO. And it's very attractive. You can hospitalize the patient, start intravenous therapy. He or she gets better. You send them home on the PO pill. All right. Sounds good, right? Three new antibiotics have a lot to offer. Now we're going to come to the punchline. The first one, aritavancin. One dose, indicated for skin and soft tissue infections. One dose, as of about four months ago, $3,600. One dose. Bingo. Dalbavancin, that's the one that has a little longer, half, uh, shorter half-life. You need two doses, one week apart. 3000 for the first dose, approximately. 1500 for the second dose, that's $4,500. See if your local pharmacy, your local uh, PT group in the pharmacy is going to approve that. The last one, Tadizolid, uh, the cost, intravenously, 1500 bucks plus, 2000 plus bucks for the PO route. These are expensive. Again, it's a big step in the right direction, new antibiotics, good indications, et cetera, but the cost is going to be a strong limiting factor to the use of these unless money is no object. There is a new topical antibiotic, relatively new. It's almost 10 years old, and we do need one. I'm changing gears quickly. You're, you're, you're with me there. This is not a replacement for mupiracin, but it's now something else to think of in place of mupiracin. So it's not replacing it. Mupiracin has been around. Bactroban is the name. You know that name. has been around since 1985, so 30 years, give or take. Increasing incidence in the last, oh, five, six, seven years. It's now approaching about 20 to 25%. That's not good. If you're going to slap on a topical antibiotic, you don't want to create a rash. We know what the problem is with neomycin, bingo. You often get a rash from that. You're thinking it's working as a topical antibiotic, and then it produces a rash. So mupiracin became more of a problem plus the expense. We have this antibiotic, retopamulin, which was approved based on three big studies. One in infected dermatoses meaning eczema, et cetera, infected traumatic wounds, cuts, abrasions, scratches, and for impetigo. Each study group, over 500 patients, FDA approved it. It can be used twice a day for five days. It can be used in munchkins as young as nine months, so under a year of age. It's good medicine. It works against MRSA, but it is not approved for MRSA. Just keep that in mind. It's blink The light's blinking at me. Jocelyn, I'm going to keep going for a little bit. Okay. Uh, so we do need a topical antibiotic. It's a little pricey, but at least is a nice alternative to mupiracin. Fusidic acid is something that should make its way to the States. It's available in Canada and the UK. This has steroid-like activities, but it's not a steroid. It works very well in impetigo and in infected dermatoses. It's also occasionally mixed with a topical steroid as topical therapy for kids with atopic dermatitis. This is a good drug. I have no idea why it's not available in this country. It should have been available 15, 20 years ago. Derm surgery and topical antibiotics. Nice study from the Blue Journal about six years ago, give or take. They, the authors looked at safe, I shouldn't say safe, clean procedures done in an outpatient setting, primarily by dermatologists. And what they found was the following, that most clean procedures are done by us, dermatologists or dermatologic offices, some equally done by family docs and others, whoever the others are, but most, two-thirds of them done by derms. And the use of topical antibiotics wasn't 
pervasive, but it was rather commonplace. It was done in about 5% of procedures, and derms used it the most. You would think derms would be a little bit more attuned to the potential contact sensitivity, the lack of efficacy. No, derms did it more than the family docs and the other groups. Most of this was done for procedures, small procedures, excisions, biopsies, et cetera. We do know topical antibiotics don't cut down on wound infection rates. If you have a clean wound after you're done with your procedure, it's gonna stay clean. Soap and water, Vaseline or Aquaphor, yeah, that's a trade name. That's all you probably need. Minimize the use of topical antibiotics to offset the likelihood of a contact dermatitis. You also offset the likelihood of antibiotic-resistant organisms by not using a topical antibiotic, and you also decrease the cost of medical care. We all wanna save everybody money. Your offices from supplying the goods, your patients from buying it if you give them a prescription to go to the pharmacy. So stop it, discontinue it, think about it otherwise. We're gonna end with a bang. This is good information. This was a publication, the Archives of Internal Medicine. I don't read this unless something comes my way. This was done by two internists, one of whom is a good friend of dermatology. He's often an editor and a critic for Journal Watch. Uh, he's a good speaker. He's spoken at the Academy annual meetings at my behest twice. Good guy. These two fellows looked at almost 200 trials in the literature of infection where the patients were treated with appropriate antimicrobials, could be antibiotics or antiviral, antifungals, and they also, by coincidence, were receiving corticosteroids systemically for maybe another reason or for that in concert with before the actual treatment, et cetera. So most trials, patients received steroids and an antimicrobial, and what they found they looked at all these studies, over 200, and they were able to group patients into five broad categories, five big groups. Group one included some infections that have the potential to kill. Look at this, bacterial meningitis, TB meningitis, pericarditis. They got their antibiotics, but they also, got, they also received systemic corticosteroids, and what they found was that corticosteroids improved the survival of these affected patients. That's pretty good. So they got good hospital care, good doctor care, good medical care, meaning the drugs, but they also got systemic corticosteroids, which improved their survival, not bad. The second group of patients fell into this group of infections, mainly bacterial arthritis. Think, well, why am I gonna use steroids for that? Some of them received corticosteroids found to be beneficial, reduced long-term disability. Not bad, got them back on their feet, back to work, back to exercising, back to their job a little bit more quickly. Third group contained two conditions familiar to us, zoster, shingles, and cellulitis. They got their antibiotics, good care, in or out of the hospital, didn't really, didn't really matter, and corticosteroids relieved the symptoms, made them feel a little bit better. And some of us probably remember from the old days, if there are any oldsters in the group, and I'm not an oldster, but in training, for zoster, we often use systemic corticosteroids, either some prednisone or kenalog in the butt, uh, to offset. And we were probably doing the right thing back then, just unknowingly so. Group four was a group of primarily pulmonary infections. And here, corticosteroids were on board. They couldn't tell whether they helped. They didn't help. They didn't have much benefit. They were just there. And group five only had two conditions, where corticosteroids were verboten, that's German for forbidden, not allowed, viral hepatitis and cerebral malaria, not exactly something we are going to encounter. Here they were harmful, contraindicated, or a detriment. Beneficial and safe, except in the HIV population, they should not be used for more than three weeks. 
and the benefit is mainly the anti-inflammatory effect. And we'll end with this. Coriander. Coriander is a spice. The leaf variety is known as cilantro. You probably use it in salad, maybe have it at home in a jar, you go out to a restaurant, etc. And the oil is often used to treat, uh, as, is used as an herbal remedy, and it's used in many South American communities to offset GI upset, maybe fungus infection, a rash here and there. So it has some homemade medicinal value, putatively, but not really so. Researchers, I think in the Netherlands, looked at the coriander oil at a concentration of 1.6% and found that it was bactericidal, not static, cidal. It killed the bugs. 12 different bacterial strains, including Salmonella, E. coli, and MRSA. Okay, what does this mean? It may mean nothing, but it might mean that the oil can be used perhaps as a preservative for canned and jarred foods, uh, might be <clears throat> used in that manner. Or when you go out to eat later today or tomorrow, you might think of getting some cilantro and sprinkling it on your pasta or the salad. You might be a little bit of a healthier person. I just throw that out there. It's a nice ending. I am done. I thank you for your time, your attention. I don't know if we have any time left to do anything else, but I'll try. We're done. That's it. An hour and five minutes, whatever. Jocelyn, I'll give you some of my time tomorrow. Wait, that first question, was there any question about the answer? No. Oh, this should be at least a four. As a result of this program, absolutely yes. Dead. <laughs> I've got five quick true false. Do you care? Do you care? I don't care. It's, up, it's going to be up to them. I, I do have five rapid fire self assessment questions if there's time. Are you in favor or not? All right, here we go. Number one. I'll read them quickly. Going to be very quick. No. Oh, I got the word from the back. No go. Jocelyn, it's all yours. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.